and um, and then there are these dynamics in in church growth, the church growth movement, and all that, where they'll they'll tell you different things you need to do with your worship, with your architecture, with your you know just stylistic stuff, which is just so much window dressing. It's just you know ribbon and 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 all that. It's not reality, but um, it's attractive. It can be attractive to um, non Christians and. And the thing can can grow like Willow, Willow Creek and all that those kind of models that came after that. So, to be able to look at that and say, you know, there's nothing of any lasting significance there if the doctrine's not right, if the gospel's not being preached, if lives are not actually being transformed by the grace of God, then all of that's going to go away uh, like the morning mist. So just to know that and be able to discern it. So I don't know what the hot techniques are now. I'm not up on it. Really, I'm not. But I know that there are some all the time. Every five years or whatever, there's different paradigms that go out. But I think it's interesting tracing it back to um, this mechanistic, you know, the Charles Finney, some of these other things, that if you get the music right, you know, he invented the anxious bench, the new measures, all of these. They're techniques. They're all techniques. So to recognize that that does not actually produce lasting change. Yeah, let me say one thing about that too. The Bible is is genuinely, deeply, richly authentic, because you look at at all of the the heroes that are deeply marred by sin. You look at Peter denying Jesus, um, you know, calling down curses on himself if he even knew Jesus. I mean, that's that's a very bad moment in Peter's life, and yet Peter was a great hero of the faith in terms of preaching the Pentecost sermon and the way that God used him in the book of Acts and all that. And so and we see this again and again, obviously King David, a, par- a paradigm of this, of, of brokenness, not just with Bathsheba, but like when he wanted to slaughter Nabal's household because they didn't pay for, you know, that was a bad moment. Abigail saw what was coming. It's like, you don't want to do this. And what a big moment that was for David. Is this the kind of king you're going to be? That you're going to strap on your sword if somebody affronts you or insults you, you're going to slaughter him? And so David was an imperfect man, and he himself said, my sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. So we have a long record of broken sinners that God used greatly. Uh, even Job, who was a blameless and upright man, as the trial wore on, he started saying things that ought not to be said. And that's why he repented. You know, he didn't have nothing to repent from. Um, and so that's very authentic. I love that, that word that, that you brought up. So we don't need any additional authentic. We're not trying to add to that pile. You know, it's like we're trying to be saved from it. You know, but the Bible is, be- is beautifully honest about its heroes. And doesn't that make Jesus shine all the brighter? Where he can look at his enemies and say, which of you can convict me of sin? And they had nothing to say. And it didn't mean they weren't trying to trap him in his words or get him in some technicality or something like that with taxes to Caesar, things like that. But he hadn't done anything wrong. So. You know, the, 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 the powerful demonstration of Christ at work through his spirit that shows up in those moments. And so it's, yes, there's brokenness. The requirement for faithfulness is the word you mentioned, repentance. That's the thing that's missing in the authenticity era. Right? So... Yeah, I'm a sinner just like you, so let's keep going forward. 
No, no. There is a necessity for confession and repentance. That when you look at uh, Josiah, the powerful demonstration of repentance against sin, where sin, the temptation to sin was broken or buried or burned. We don't have anything like that in normal pursuits of repentance. It's like, you know, pray, if there's tears, there seems to be contriteness. And then really we enter, I think, normatively time as a synonym for repentance. Mm -hmm. And then we put people back in pulpits or we just continue on and, you know, it's, it's hurtful to the body, I think it's hurtful to, to the church. But, you know, when you look at the desire, I mean, we so want to give mercy to men who we know are broken like we're broken. Um, but, but there's a picture, uh, not just in Josiah, and then Proverbs, I'll just read Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So that authenticity, don't conceal it. But he who confesses, right, to admit it, authenticity, to be honest, and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And you see expressions of that in David's life. You see Peter, when the Lord came back to him after his rejection of God, right, public and private in ways, and there was a contriteness and a moment of embrace. And a, 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 you see a turning in Peter where he, he gets back to the work that he had professed his devotion to. Um, and then I'll just read one more. Because I, I, I just know, so I wrote an article on this. Um, confession is not repentance. Um, it doesn't have to be harsh. It doesn't have to be unloving. In fact, it should be kind. And it should be patient and enduring. But it also should be clear I'm just thinking of uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 7, verse 10 and 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in me, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you prove yourselves innocent in the matter. I believe referring to innocent as a matter of sin that you at some point have been found guilty of. Just you know, creating space for that to be a good, a good pursuit. It, how long? I don't know, but I do know that repentance, when it's real, is really difficult to deny. Yeah. Anyway, that's okay. Anyone have a question, either for Andy or Ty or both at this time? So, any, uh, any questions about all these people? Yeah. Yeah, it's been one of the greatest blessings of my life. It's foundational to my ministry. Uh, it's helped me in sequential exposition more than I can imagine, more than I can, I can, I can relate. Like I'm preaching through Mark right now, and um, um, two years ago or so, I began memorizing Mark and got, got through it. Um, and uh, so everything I'm preaching on, I've already recited literally several hundred times, um, hundreds of times. And uh, so in that it's just meditation's going to happen and insight's going to happen. And plus, if you're doing the whole book, you can see the whole, the whole package of the 16 chapters of Mark and be able to preach on that. So advantageous. So it started for me, as I mentioned, I was uh, converted my junior year at MIT. And um, a lot of those, those guys there at, with Campus Crusade for Christ were doing the topical memory system, which um, was, had little cards and it would have a title of the verse and then the reference and then the verse. And you would memorize and you would have these cards. And the, the real veterans, I mean the pros, uh, these guys had these snap rings with like hundreds of these cards. And they, they looked like they were the janitor for MIT, you know what I'm saying? With like 200 keys, you know, they'd walk around with these things and they, they'd flip through them. And I just thought there was probably a limit to that whole methodology. You know, at some point you're going to run out of snap rings or something like that and and it just occurred to me why not memorize you know the whole chapter also there was a tendency from time to time to take the verses out of context so we weren't really seeing the context like uh, a good example in Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three come together in my name there am I with them and people just think that's about prayer or the prayer meeting or something but it's in the context of church discipline um, so it's a different matter but at any rate I was I was on a mission trip I was in Kenya and uh, I was, I was, was uh, trying to take a bus back to Nairobi. And uh, I asked someone there, I said, when does the bus come? And they said, in the afternoon. 
well, I'm such an American. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. So I was there at 11.50, you know, like you would be, right? And the bus came around 3.30 or something like that, I don't know, at some point. Uh, it's a very social culture. I mean, relationships. How's your family? How's your father? How's your mother? How's your, how's your, your second cousin? You know, all that. We're very task-oriented, and so we're going to run buses on a, on a very careful schedule. So I was sitting there on a bench with nothing to do. And I had my Bible with me, and I thought, all right, why don't I memorize Ephesians? So I started with Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, of the saints in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, and just started working on it. And, and that was early in the, in the 10-week mission trip, so I just kept at it. And, you know, you're busy on the mission field, but you also have a little more time than you do in your American life. You know, when you get back here, you get busy with everything. So I actually made some pretty good progress that summer. And, and when I came back, um, I just kept going. I kept working on it. And I actually finished Ephesians, and then I added Philippians after that, worked on Philippians, which is a shorter book. Ephesians 155 verses, and Philippians 104. Around that time, I, I wanted to learn how to play piano. I really did. I always wanted to play a musical instrument. Still do. <laughs> and there was a guy there that offered to teach me to play piano for free. It was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I was going full-time. And there was a piano in a practice room that I had access to 24-7, could go to. But I also had a thought of upping my memory game and doing the Gospel of Matthew. And in order to do that, I had, to, I had to increase my rate. And I decided I would do six verses a day. So I realized I couldn't do both, so I just gave up on the whole piano thing to this day. All right, um, But I worked on Matthew. And at six verses a day, it was taking me about 90 minutes a day. Basically, it was like my musical instrument. You know, that you think about somebody who's really dedicated to learning violin or piano, they're practicing a lot. And so I would go into an empty classroom at Gordon-Conwell and I would just recite the verses and developed the technique that I eventually wrote about and put in a pamphlet um, that my publisher said has been downloaded 50,000 times. Um, so I have a lot of people that come up to me and say that they've used my methodology for memorizing extended portions of Scripture. But I kept going with um, Matthew, and that started my lifetime journey. And right now it's, it's um, Ezekiel, which has been very, very hard because of the genre, and because I'm older, it's just harder. Um, Ecclesiastes was after Mark. I went from Mark to Ecclesiastes, the most depressing book I've ever memorized. Very dreary. And, but it, I also have a, a good sense of what the book is about. And what the book is about, in my opinion, Ecclesiastes, is this is what life would, would be like if there is no resurrection from the dead. It is meaningless. Isn't that true? If this life is all there is, isn't it true that every project you put your hand to will eventually be dust in the wind? All the people who knew you will all die, and there'll be nobody on earth that even knows you even lived. And if you read Ecclesiastes, you get a sense that Solomon, if that's who wrote it or whoever wrote it, is almost angry about it or depressed. Um, and yet, Paul answers it in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, when it says, Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is what? It's not vanity. So if there is a resurrection from the dead, the things we're doing here today matter. Everything matters. So anyway, that was Ecclesiastes. So I'm on my 47th book now. I have one book left to do the New Testament. That's Luke. Uh, it's another synoptic gospel, so I'll probably do some other Old Testament books before I get back to Luke, because it'll be very similar to Mark. So, but it's been a great journey, and, and I would commend it to anyone. I, I basically feel like, you know, I have friends in mid-level or multi-level marketing, like they sell Amway, and you don't want to be around them, you know, because they're selling you some product or whatever. When I'm with people, I give them a sales pitch on you, why you should memorize Scripture. I do this all the time, so that's what I've just basically done. Sure. Yeah, one of the things that did strike me, and I actually was going to make it the, the, my second talk, but um, talking to Eric, it seemed it would be better to speak about discouragement and pastoral ministry. Um, but what I, what I got, what really struck me was the holiness of God in the first 20 chapters of Ezekiel. What God is doing in Ezekiel is he's, this is right around the time of the exile. So he's the same time as Jeremiah. Uh, exile came in stages, so Ezekiel's already with the exiles. And there's, there's stuff going on. And what God is doing is he wants Ezekiel to know how wicked and corrupt the nation of Israel is, especially the elders. 
how in Ezekiel 8, he takes, him on a, uh, he takes Ezekiel on a special spirit vision journey to show him the secret patterns of wickedness and idolatry going on in the lives of the elders of Israel. And why does he do that? He wants him to know that there's a reason for the judgments he's going to pour out on Israel. There is a reason for everything he does. Let me actually read, I just feel led by the Spirit to read this right now. Um, this is this one thing in Ezekiel, I think it's 14. Let me just read this. And it's a, this is what Scripture memory does, is it, it makes you attentive to details and stuff you had never seen before. Uh, at least I hadn't. And so Ezekiel 14 Um, he says this. Um, he's talking about judgments he's going to pour out on the nation of Israel. The four, four dreadful judgments of sword, famine, and wild beasts and plague. Then he says this. Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters who will be brought out of it. They will come to you. This is the remnant. They will come to you. And when you see their conduct and their actions... You will be consoled regarding the disaster I've brought upon Jerusalem. Every disaster I've brought upon it. You'll be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions. For you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord. That's really interesting. He says, just hang around with these people. Get to know them. See how they are. And when you see how wicked and corrupt they are, you'll know why I destroyed Jerusalem. And you'll be consoled. Jerusalem will be a pile of smoldering rubble but you'll have me and you'll know that I never do anything without reason there's a reason behind everything I do one last thing um, I'm doing a texted devotional with my son Calvin and we're in the book of, uh, of Daniel and the most recent one I did was Daniel 9 1 through 17 that's a very broken humble prayer of confession that Daniel does concerning the wickedness of the nation of Israel, but also his request, his, his intercession, that God would rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And I'd read it many times before, and I always thought, boy, isn't Daniel such a humble man to confess sins he didn't even commit? Confessing the solidarity he has with, with this corrupt nation of Israel. And I still think that's true. I think Daniel is uniquely holy because he is mentioned in Ezekiel as one of the three holy men, that even if those men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, stood before me, I would still destroy the land. So he's a godly man. But I'm seeing it differently now. God saw the nation together, all of them together, as wicked, idolatrous, and corrupt. And all of the nation together needed to take ownership for what happened. And Daniel was just doing that. He was, he was fitting into what God had impressed on him of how corrupt the people were. And it brought, literally brought me to tears because I realized I can't care, carry Daniel's shoes. And how much more should I be confessing, like you just said, my own wickedness and corruption. The one thing I was going to, I was going to preach on was the issue of fire. If you look up in Ezekiel, first 20 chapters, that's where I'm at. Uh, the first 20 chapters, there's a lot of images of fire. Fire, fire. There's lots of fire. Begins in chapter 1 where, where the cherubim are on fire. And high above there's an expanse, and high above that there's a throne that's glowing as if heated metal. And there's a man that halfway down is on fire and halfway up is like glowing metal. And that's like pre-incarnate Christ. It's like, and it, it fits into Hebrews 12. Our God is a consuming fire. And, and there's this holy angel. There's six destructive angels that are going to be killing people in Jerusalem. But there's this one angel that's dressed in linen that has a writing kit and he's supposed to go put a mark on all of the people who grieve and lament over all the wickedness done in the city of Jerusalem. And then he also then is told to go in among the wheels of the cherubim and collect the fire that's among them and, and, and hurl it down, coals of fire, on the city of Jerusalem. What struck me is, this is like a bombing run. So this is bombing run of holiness igniting the city of Jerusalem in fire, of the fire of God's judgment. But the fire is the native element of the cherubim. It's like the, the, the air they breathe. They're not being burned by it. They are the fire. And it just gives me a picture of the holiness of heaven, the holiness of God and of these angels. 
and then the corruption of, of, the, na- of the nation. And, so, and then someday, when Christ is done with his work in us, we are going to be that holy ourselves. Like we said, the righteous are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our fathers. We're going to be on fire with the holiness of God. So that's what struck me. So that's a miniature, miniature version of the sermon I would have preached. So. Uh, I was until until last year. Um, so I I went through the Bible through the entire Bible in a year for uh, ten years. I didn't you know I was very faithful with that, um, but I just don't have the time right now. Um, so I just feel like the meditations I'm getting from Ezekiel are sufficient to feed my soul, and then I have my prayer time, and then I have the t- uh, typed out the texted devotion with my son, that takes an additional 15 minutes because it takes a while to write with my thumbs. I'm not good with my thumbs. I don't know how fast you guys are texting, but I'm not very... So we're doing Luke and Daniel. So I get a little more from Luke and Daniel, and that's my Bible intake. Well, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I never addressed the divisive issues uh, from the pulpit. I just continued. I was a sequential expositor. That's not where I was. I just kept going and going and going with the books I was preaching on. But we had special sessions where people would come in and we talk about gender and authority. So we did the teaching at those times, like a Sunday evening. We had other times, and I published, a, a, published but printed a stack of the uh, 30-page booklet on the teaching on gender authority and got it out. So everybody knew what we were saying. Um, but we did special teaching times and all that. But I didn't do it from the pulpit. No. <laughs> no, that was a call to repent, but it wasn't the sermon. <laughs> What happened was, um, yeah, this, uh, basically, the way we defined deacons back then was like pseudo-elders. It was a pseudo-eldering role. And so just given that, in my opinion, faulty definition of deacon, um, we have deacons now that just fo- perform servant roles, and we do allow women to be deacons in that sense. And if you wonder why, uh, there are exegetical reasons for it. Um, but we, you know, what happened was, what I was calling the church to repent from wasn't just that they had chosen a woman deacon. It wasn't that. It was how it was done and the attitude and the divisiveness and the bitterness and all of that. The church was in trouble. And here's the thing. Um, Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, one of the most famous moments in church history, is the beginning of the Reformation, 1517. The first of the 95 Theses said something like this. Uh, thesis one, when, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he intended that the entire Christian life should be one of repentance. So in other words, you, you should be repenting every day. I mean, isn't that true? Doesn't the Holy Spirit convict you of something every day? Or are you having a perfect day today? I mean, how are you doing? Are you guys like having your first perfect day in weeks now? I mean, the Spirit is constantly showing us things and ways we could be more like Christ. Sins of omission, sins of commission. It's a river of issues that we're dealing with. So to me, it wasn't that unique that I was calling the church to repent. But in their way of thinking, you repent once at the Billy Graham thing or when you came forward and joined the church and you're done with that repentance stuff. So they they thought I was saying they weren't Christians. I was not saying they were not Christians. I was saying they sinned and they should repent. And I said we all need, we all as a church needed to take ownership for that. So that was quite a moment. What happened was there was a a visiting family that had come that day. They they were looking for a Bible preaching church. They sat down. They saw in the bulletin the list of deacons and the woman who had 
been elected had a clearly female name. You know, there's some names you're not sure. So they looked and they're like, oh, wow. Um, so this guy leaned forward and he said to his wife, he said, do you want to leave now or should you leave later? We're not staying here. They didn't want to be there. Then I got up and did that, called on the church to repent. Now he's intrigued. <laughs> so he's like, what is going on here? And so he came up and talked to me afterwards and uh, they ended up being in our church for 15 or 18 years until a job took him away. So that was an interesting day. You know, we, we do work regularly to train our body as a whole to pray truth, right? Not to pray feelings or even to pray merely circumstances. I believe God wants us to call out to him and all of that. But even when I opened up, I don't know if you heard, I actually prayed most of the Lord's Prayer in a, in a bit of, of a narrative way. I wasn't quoting scripture, but... But if we're dependent on the Lord ourselves as servants, if we really believe that we're not about to do anything of any fruitfulness in him, apart from him, then we would pray in a way that proclaims his truth through our prayer in the gospel, as we preach in the gospel, as we sing in the gospel. So when we gather together as a body to pray, we open the scriptures and there are many people, men and women, praying the scriptures and praying praise, expressions of prayer, and making requests before the, before the Lord. So that's one way that we tend to do that. And then in services, our service leaders, we do train them to read scripture out loud before the body, but also to pray what we know to be true already about who God is, about who we are, about where our hope lies. So those are some examples. Good. Thank you. Good question, Carl. Uh, can both I would say that there are churches that acknowledge the fact that the state of the church now, when it's, it's basically represented for what it is, which isn't amazing, right? 
cannot run away from the reality that when you look at the book of Revelation, there were only two churches out of seven that was faithful, found faithful. Not perfect, but found faithful. And so just to embrace the, 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 the blessing that comes when God allows his bride to keep faithfulness together or to repent, as the church had done, to repent and return to their first love, which is Christ. And so I, I love the, the beauty of the fact that it doesn't need to be a statistical phenomenon for the church to be in a good state. What does need to be true is for the church to be in a good state, which has some faithful representations of the gospel. And to me, that, that encourages my heart. Otherwise, I'm longing and stirring for the stats to be more in favor. And I think, I think internationally, sometimes there is a, a desire to make the numbers better. And so we, we, you know, oh, that's a church, that's a church, that's a church, that's a church. There are 50,000 churches. I'm not sure about all of that. I, I mean, some of you have stats to help us explain why that doesn't need to be necessary. But what is encouraging to my heart is to see that, you know, there are faithful people wanting truth. There are faithful pastors teaching others, you know, generationally to proclaim the goodness of God and his glory. So just faithfulness demonstrated regardless of the numerics. I mean, when, when you asked me to come serve, you know, we didn't know how many people would come. And I thought, well, if there's, if it's me and you and one or two of our friends and we get to open the word together, that would be good. That would be faithful, faithful representation of the church. So. Yeah. One thing that struck me is that uh, no, no baby is ever born in the world knowing anything about Jesus. And yet Jesus is the most famous human being in every generation, by far. And why is that? Because the Holy Spirit's very good at his job. He's very good at exalting Christ. And he uses Christian families mostly. I would say two-thirds to three-quarters of the Christians in the world had at least one Christian parent. And myself, I'm, I'm very interested in cross-cultural missions and frontier missions. I'm a trustee with the International Mission Board. And we know that there are whole nations, uh, cultures that have never heard the name of Jesus and we're responsible to get the gospel to them. But if you look at the progress of, let's say, um, uh, biblical Christianity or New Testament Christianity, let's say a New Testament church that preaches the, the doctrine of the new birth and all that, uh, not talking about medieval Catholicism, which was somewhat of a, sadly, a theological wasteland. But from, let's say, from the time of Luther now, 500 years, and you were to put dots where there are evangelical congregations, all right, where would you put dots in 1530, let's say? You'd put them in Germany where the Reformation had been, in Switzerland where Calvin was starting his work, you know, et cetera. And then you, if you kept going every 50 years, and you just kept putting dots where there are evangelical churches, congregations, who assemble in the name of the Lord to preach the Bible, to preach what we would recognize as the true gospel, even if they have different patterns than we would have, etc. Then, you know, let's say in the colonial era, it would go down the 13 colonies, there would be dots there, definitely England would be covered with dots, northern Europe, not so much southern Europe, nothing else in the world. Maybe some down in some of the plantations where the Moravians had started some missions down there on some of the sugar plantations and stuff. Every 50 years, though. And then you had the great thing of William Carey saying, we have an obligation as Protestants to take the gospel to unreached people groups. All right? And that began the great century of missions, the 19th century. And the dots started spreading. All right? So you got Adoniram Ann Judson in Burma. You got then Hudson Taylor to the inland regions of China, and you start getting dots in China, not just on the coast now, but then going in. And you just keep going. Where was it in, in 1900? Where are the dots of evangelical congregations? 1950, where are the dots of evangelical congregations? How many are there? Where are they? How widespread geographically? Where are they now? The year, let's say the year 2000. The gospel has exploded geographically in the last 200 plus years. Just exploded. Now I know that not all of those people are born again. But a lot of them are. <laughs> a lot of them are. Hundreds and hundreds of millions are. And that's because the Holy Spirit has been doing his sovereign work of taking the blood of Christ and applying it like the painting of the doorposts and lintels. He's applying it to people's souls in every generation, it's going on. It's working. So we should not be discouraged, all right? 
the triune God are going to win. God is going to win. All of the elect will come to Christ. They will be protected in this world against the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus said in John 6, I will raise them up on the last day. And so what's encouraging to me is meeting all of you who I did not know before. I didn't know you. We'd communicated. Ty had never met you before. Brother in Christ. We're going to spend eternity together. So get used to me, all right? Um, So we're going to spend eternity together. And we're going to know each other and love each other. And that excites me. In the meantime, no, I'm not, my head's not in the sand. I know what things are going on with our, with our political scene, with our economy. You know, I, I don't pay as high gas as you guys do, though. We're around 350, 340 in, in Durham. You guys are higher. <laughs> We're bringing it down, bringing okay. it down. It's coming down. Yes. I saw in the, in the fours, you know, that was high. <laughs> so how can we celebrate, you know, 360 or whatever now? It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's also encouraging blessing that we have to proclaim the gospel publicly now I think there's the sort of lamenting about maybe what what is that what it is that we've lost or we feel like we're losing you know legally politically or what have you that that, that is real it's real but you still can pray you still can preach you still can you know the doors aren't falling in on the blessing that we have in this country to proclaim the goodness of God's God's word and you know I'm, I'm often saying, what are we doing with the freedom we have now to live for Jesus and proclaim Jesus? And that, that's encouraging to my heart because we, we really don't have lots of restrictions by and large if we use all the ones we have. So, that's encouraging. Good. Thank you. More questions? That's, a, I think, a really powerful statement about what is on your heart and what you believe God would maybe lead you to in the church. I, you know, I, I've served in churches uh, both to my shame and my credit, uh, maybe, but because uh, to my shame, maybe in the past, uh, to credit to realize that there's a, there's a more biblically faithful way. So a church of 10,000, a church of 2,000, uh, the first, you know, decade of 22 years of, of ministry now. And I would just say, be sure... Structurally, be sure to let the scriptures define your what and your why. It's really attuned to what what my brother was saying earlier. So what you do in your church, try to figure out how to not have a plan until you spend time letting God's word soak over your mind and your heart and in your prayer in a way that what comes out of it, it's not because it works down the street or because you heard about it or you know it, it, it you know, people will come and they will like it, but what is the most biblically faithful way that you can equip parents to do their job? It's not actually your job. It doesn't matter what your title is. Before God, your job is not to disciple people's kids for them, although I know a lot of times that's what they would like. Our church was first starting. This brother came to the church. His wife came with his two kids, and uh, he said to me, after I reached out to him, uh, I said, how can I serve you, brother? And he had two older, older kids at that time, and, and he said, you can disciple my, my kids for me. I said, yeah, um, the fact that you use that word helps me to understand that I shouldn't probably do that. I probably should help you learn how to disciple your kids. Yeah. Mm. And so the, the beauty of, of that is that in time, it was a beautiful story of God growing this man up and establishing him in, his, in, in the home that God had given him as the rightful servant of the word in the home to his, to his own kids. And so, you know, that mentality will cause people to leave a church because <laughs> you don't offer enough programs or, you know, I don't know, the average size of a church is still sub 100, yeah? Average size of a church, I, I don't know. Last time I saw a number, that was still true. And so don't, don't be scared of the consequences of faithfulness. 
And so to take time to let Deuteronomy 6, not just the end of the verses that have to do with as you walk along the way, as you lie down at night about teaching the kids the truth of God, but the passages that come before that, which have everything to do with parents themselves loving the Lord their God with all of their heart, all of their mind, and all of their soul. That, that's the foundation. It's not the program. It's not the what to do. If you gave me a choice, parents that live faithfully for the Lord and have God's word in them, and they're living it out, or awesome program that teaches kids and parenthood. Based on what scripture says, I would choose A. And so helping them get that Deuteronomy 6, 69, helping them get what is foundationally expected for Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 to, to come about, right? One of the hardest things to do is to teach a kid to obey their parents when their parents aren't even pursuing the Lord, right? They're dropping them off or, you know, hey, are you, do I have to stay? That's the question. For the, do I have to stay for the, or can I leave while you, right? So helping parents understand that it's God's heart and God has ordained for those kids to be in that household with those parents even with their bumps and bruises, the, the strength of a father just clinging to the gospel and, and availing, surrendering his life. It's not a hard work, try harder. I would say it's a surrender more to the work of the spirit through the word. So if you could get parents to get that part of scripture, I think it would pave a way to that ministry that you have been entrusted with uh, being effective to get the gospel and God's word to those kids. Yeah. Great. Andy, can you talk about Yeah, I just take take the humor aside and just speak positively. Let's let's assume that you've gotten to the point where you think the church is a good candidate for you to go to. There's still things you're going to want to know, um, and I think um, I think it's very reasonable um, to you know for them to uh, to speak about the ministry that has come up to that point, their history, you know, their relationship with their pastors. Um, you know, the, the question no one ever wants to answer in, a, in an interview is, you know, what would you say are your weaknesses? What would you say are things you need? You know, like, who, what's the right answer to that? But imagine finding a, a winsome way to ask that of a church. What are some ways you would like to grow? What are some ways you think you could grow in, in your witness here or in your spiritual health? You know, talk to me about yourselves. Tell me, you know, but just the basic concept of the candidate interviewing the church is enough. Just start there. And then say, all right, I'm going to interview the church. They're definitely going to interview me, but I'm going to interview them. Um, and say, okay, start there. And then the question would be, well, what questions would I ask? So what you're trying to get at is trying to understand the culture of the church, get a good idea of what you're actually going to be facing. I'd want to know the church's demographics, their, their age spread. Do they have a, a, a spread of ages or are they concentrated you know, toward senior? A lot of, a lot of churches that need re- revitalization are older. Um, they're se- like senior adult type churches without, uh, without a youth group maybe they don't have teens um, they have teens that visit them on the weekends because they're their grandkids um, and so their church is like that so a lot of times churches that need revitalization tend to be older a bit older so you want to find that out um, other aspects what's your connection with the community what are some ways you sought to win people to Christ and like I'm sorry what win people to Christ so they're not doing any evangelism. All right, so that's where they're at. Just find out about that. Uh, what are your worship styles? What are some things that, what have you, you know, what do you do on Sunday mornings for worship? You know, questions like that. But all I'm saying is the, over, the overarching thing is it is reasonable for you as a candidate for ministry at that church to ask as many questions you may need to know should I come and spend a good chunk of my life and my effort, my ministry here. And if they're going to be if they're going to be poisonous toward you, don't you want to know before you come there? And there are ways of finding out if they're going to be harsh to their pastors. Yeah, so part of it would be definitely uh, talk to the previous pastors. What was your life like there? Uh, how did the people treat you? How did it go, et cetera? So I would do that. Yeah, I, I would say two things as it relates to that process. I, you know, I, I don't know where you could go in pastoral world and there's not going to be some kind of noteworthy difficulty that comes against the pastor. I mean, you could get it all set up just right, and I think, I, I mean, correct me, would you, I would say it would be foolish to think that you're going to find the one, and it's going to be 
nice and smooth. Right? So I've been at it for 22 years, and I haven't seen that or found that. And, and it's, I think it's been faithful good works, but that doesn't exist. And that's why I believe that your maturity is so necessary. Your maturity in Christ, your ability to depend on Christ, um, that's how I'm defining maturity, with a, a full-on knowledge and acknowledgement of your own broken weakness, which just makes you hopefully depend on Christ more instead of being violent, instead of being harsh, instead of lacking gentleness, instead of lacking patience. I know how weak I am. I need to depend on Christ more in all those spaces. People see that as a means through which you get into the role, right? That's how I qualify. I'm qualified to get in. And I, I increasingly tell pastors, brother, that's not how, we, how you get in. That's how you stay in. It's, it's going to be that dependence on that gospel work of this ongoing repentance, which is in the Lord's Prayer. You pray like Jesus says to pray, you're going to be seeking repentance regularly. Every time you pray, you're going to be seeking repentance at the very least. And so you're going to need, I woke up Siri, so uh, <laughs> you're going to need you're going to need that maturity in Christ, not just to get in, but also to stay in the role of serving the local flock. And the one question I found fruitful when I was interviewed and asked to, to work in a, uh, they didn't select me, so it's not really a, a projection of self, but uh, they, they said no. Uh, they asked me to interview for a, a, an administrator role in a, in a seminary, a well-known seminary, and they had me talking with them. I was interviewing. My one question that really exposed a lot so far is like three and oh. What am I going to learn about the culture? I can't quite see from the outside, but once I get in, I'm going to learn. And one pastor, elder, maybe two, yeah, one church ago, he said, you're going to learn that we're kind of immature. I don't know that I could have, like he said, if I just had to said, how are you guys weak? I don't know if he would have said we're immature. But once you get in, one of the things you're going to learn is they're not super mature. Guess what? About 18 months later, <laughs> I see how immature they are. So it was no shock to me. And another organization, they let me know by virtue of me asking that question before I finished it. They're so excited. They spoke to what I would define as their commitment to culture driving their ministry as opposed to scripture driving their ministry. And all I asked them was, what are you excited about that's a part of your culture or will be a part of your culture? It's not private, but I can't see it from the outside. But once I get in, I'll see it. And they spoke to that. And I thought, oh, that is so helpful. Yeah, I've been mentoring a, um, a pastor who's an associate pastor. He went to our church while he was at Southeastern Seminary and then took a church as an associate pastor under another godly man. The two of them resigned about 10 days ago. And I saw it coming, too. Um, but there was a faction of, of older men deacons who um, um, who decided to get rid of these guys, basically. And um, they started to pick a fight with them. And the, the issues are so ridiculous. Uh, like they took the Christmas tree out of the sanctuary in December and put it in the fellowship hall without asking the deacons. So it's a power and control thing. You didn't talk to us and things like that. It also... They had not reinstituted their Sunday school program after COVID. Well, the reason was there weren't any qualified teachers of the Bible there. And they were trying to train and get people ready so that the actual handling of Scripture would be something that they would not be ashamed of on Judgment Day. They didn't quite say that to the people, but they were trying to get people ready for that and all that. But at any rate, these, this faction of deacons decided the time had come. And, and in a congregational, a Baptistic church, that can happen. All right, and you get a faction where they decide they just want to get rid of, of the pastor and the associate pastor. Now, the associate pastor is one of the, one of the meekest, kindest, soft-spoken, most gentle people I've, I've been with. Very, that's his personality. It's not my personality, but that is his personality. The pastor had been there for 10 years. All right? He was completely shattered by this experience. Um, very contentious members meeting. Um, they asked, somebody on, you know, supportive of their ministry said, you got to come in here and say, because they're saying everything from one slant about the meetings that were held. And I don't think it went that way, but there's no one answering them. You need to come in and give your side of the account. Well, the pastor couldn't even walk in the room. He was just so shattered. He had already, he was gone. He, he'd already left, basically. But Jason went in and he did what he could to explain it and all that. All right, why did I say all that? I guess I just want that church marked with a flag. 
all right? I'm not saying that they can't be reclaimed. I'm saying if you go there, just know what you're walking into. That's all. Just try to find out. So you can go in with all the humility. These men were humble, and they were godly. They were loving. They wanted to be kind. They wanted all that. They wanted to be there for years and try to help that. The church didn't want that. They didn't. They didn't want the word of God. And so it's just, I don't know what networks or associations can do to red flag a church or market toxic or something like that. I don't know. But they don't. They're just in business now for the next pastor, looking for the next person. And the same is the other way around because they're abusive pastors that, that, you know, it's both ways, both sides of the equation. Yeah, I, I think sometimes we need to be courageous enough to help some unhealthy churches close. I've actually had the, the privilege of helping a couple of unhealthy churches close. There's the sense in which like, we just got to go forward, just got to keep going, we just got to, just got to, you know. And I, that's not always true. Sometimes that that needs to. So, so much as is up to us. God could do a miracle. God could bring a revitalizer. God could combine it with another entity. Praise God. But sometimes you just need to stop it. Well, you and I agree. Let's go. Let's go tell that church. Let's say let's you all need to shut down now. I'm You're done. <laughs> Real people's lives and real churches. We pray this in Christ's name.